This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Krampus, there is just one thing I need. <laughs> I will hide all of my presents, or he will come make me bleed. Is that he's how Krampus a, works? He's a monster from Austria. Wait, no, tell me how you think <laughs> Krampus works. You need to hide your presents, or he'll kill you. Like, if he sees that you have presents, he'll come into your house and he'll murder you. Welcome to, had a, oh, go ahead. welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I'm here to get this Krampus spirit going. I heard that you shouldn't go in the swimming pool um, until 30 minutes after you've eaten because you'll get Krampus. <laughs> I heard that bananas are a good cure for Krampus. Have we talked about Krampus already or am I confusing podcasts? I know that I've talked in this microphone with Krampus Ugh. about somebody. This is not my favorite world of podcasting where we don't know what we've said anymore. And it, I think you talked about it on your other podcast, I guess. We, mm-hmm. we have not talked about it on this one. No. Okay. What do you want to say about Krampus? Because I, I think, think I guess I think it's weird that he's got a movie now. Well, you know, we read that that uh you are the monster book and that monster became a movie star pretty quickly that's true i guess so if you were a hotshot movie producer and you saw krampus i think you would give him a film you would, would option you not? him did you think there's do you think there's an option for two more krampus films mm. and they're gonna make it a trilogy that's the hot thing is you gotta make it at least a trilogy and maybe split the third one up into two movies well depending on how long krampus is get it yeah no i get it all right cool <laughs> it's it's holidays time so happy holidays happy everybody holidays from us to you it's hol- well hanukkah is over already but ooh, Susanna made latkes which are just like don't tell anybody but they're just hash browns but they're pretty good hash browns <laughs> i don't think they're as like salty as hash browns are though I mean, you can put, it's like you salt them to taste, so they're as salty or not salty as you want them to be. B-Y-O salt is what But they're just saying. potato cakes with onions in them. Yeah. They can and be tasty. I had some with sour cream, and she had some with applesauce, which I don't really get, but, you know, to each uh, his or her own. I, I think I'm on board with Susanna on this one. I think oh, that'd really? be pretty good. You could just do ketchup if you wanted to... <laughs> I mean, you could. You could put eggs. You could put eggs on them. <laughs> put an egg on. Them. <laughs> this inside joke will appeal to the other three people on the text thread that it refer- references. So, well, so each week 
We talk about Lakas and Krampus, and then we get down to book business. Mm-hmm. And this week, because Andrew and I needed to treat ourselves after last week, uh, which was Fifty Shades Dark, Freed? 50- Freed. Oh, we God. are think about we are freed from having to read any more oh, of those books. That's man. how you remember. And we are celebrating uh, by getting in the holiday spirit, in the Krampus spirit, with uh, a movie novelization, which we've never done before, mm-hmm. of the hit family film Home Alone. And the novelization is by Todd Strasser, yes. based on the screenplay by John Hughes. Uh we oh, kinda, should we talk about like John Hughes? I plan nothing on John Hughes. I didn't I, plan I know, anything on John Hughes. All I know about John Hughes, like off the top of my head, is that Home Alone is like the the beginning of his de- creative decline. Like he made a bunch of really acclaimed '80s movies, including uh, Breakfast Club, and um, Ferris Bueller was him too, right? Sixteen Candles, Weird yeah. Science. Uncle Buck, if you like John Candy a lot, that was fine. That was a fine movie. Well, it's worth noting that Home Alone would not exist if not for Uncle Buck. Right, because Macaulay Culkin wasn't Uncle Buck. And he talked to a man through a like a mail slot, mm-hmm. and that's what gave them the idea for Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> like Inspiration a kid, can strike at any time. Yeah, like a kid harassing an adult in a funny way. Yeah, and then it spawns, like, uh, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, was the the direct sequel that had Macaulay Culkin and most of the original cast in it um, reprising their roles. Correct. Um, And then there were at least two direct-to-video things, uh, Home Alone 3 and Home Alone 4, which had nothing to do with anybody. Like, I don't even think it was a thing where they they recast all the roles with different people. Like what happened when Beethoven made the transition from theatrical release to home video release. Yes. I've, I I want to say home alone three was in the theaters, but I'm, it absolutely was not. I watched home alone three a lot and that was a direct to video movie. I think it, I think it went to theaters. I bet you $5. It grossed $80 million worldwide. Home alone three. Yes. Was it in theaters? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> it has four thieves in it. They're really upping the ante. So we want we can get into the specifics of the Home Alone, the revered Home Alone franchise first. <laughs> the storied Home Alone franchise. <laughs> but I know that you wanted to talk about movie novelizations in general because they are pretty bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, like when we when we said we would do this, I kind of laughed about it and was like, "Do they even do movie novelizations anymore? Like, is it even a thing?" And apparently, it is. And I, I think the exact question you just asked is like the headline of four different articles about yeah. movie novelizations. <laughs> but yeah, um, they've they've always been sort of a a link in the marketing chain for these movies, so they have their roots back before uh, the advent of readily accessible home video. So you watch a movie in the theaters and then you go home and you want to experience it again, but you don't have VCRs, you don't have Betamax, you don't have Laserdiscs, you can't do any of that stuff. 
Yes. So you buy a book about it and, and you read the book. And this dates back to like the 20s. There were silent films. Like I think one of them is London After Midnight is yeah, the, cited. Uh, novelization of King Kong was, was a, a huge really deal. Famous. And the novelization of the first Star Wars movie sold millions of copies apparently. And the, the first Alien as well was really popular. Yeah. The thing the, about Alien in particular and like... You find all kinds of weird one-off stories from people who do these novelizations, but the person who wrote um, the one for Alien, so these these are almost always based off of early versions of the screenplay, mm-hmm. which can present its own problems when they like do heavy revisions like later in the process, but nobody involved in the production of Alien would tell uh, Alan Dean Foster, the guy who wrote it, who does a lot of novelizations, I think, no one would told no one told him what the alien looks like. <laughs> That seems problematic. So he had to write the whole book not knowing what the alien looked like. And I did I don't know how he handled it if he just made up his own alien or if he just did like a Lovecraft thing and never actually <laughs> described it. But the the alien in Alien is pretty specific and iconic. And does specific things based on what it looks like. Yeah, it like bursts out of things. In a scary way. And if you don't know what it looks like, how are you supposed to write a book? I don't know. I also I saw the one and I saw this quote from a Vanity Fair article in 2014 about movie novelizations. Uh, Max Allen Collins, who wrote the graphic novel that became Road to Perdition, which is that Tom mm-hmm. Hanks film where he put on a fake nose and like carried that kid around Chicago. Right. Um, uh, Collins was then tasked with writing the novelization of the movie that came from his graphic novel. Yeah. And they like made him cut a bunch and chopped it up and he hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I when the, especially when you're adapting. I think it's hilarious when you write a book and it's adapted into a film and then it's adapted back into a book. Oh, like sometimes so they're dumb. content to just slap a, like the movie poster on the cover of the book and and sell it that way. But I know there was like an Ian Fleming, James Bond movie that oh was really adapted for novelization that was I think Ian Fleming himself did it. <laughs> uh, there was a novelization where the turnaround time for it was nine days. Like apparently these assignments go to experienced fiction writers who often do their own original work. And and Todd Strasser, the guy who did the Home Alone novelization, has done a lot of his own stuff which we might talk about in a minute but uh yeah it's they pay low five figures i guess is the going rate and you're just you have to take this screenplay that's like twenty thousand words or so and then bump it up to 50 or sixty thousand. and uh foster actually had a good quote about that he said you know you take a book like to kill a mockingbird you throw away three quarters of it and you win an academy award for best adapted screenplay <laughs> but if you take a screenplay and add three quarters of original material to it which is much much more difficult piece of writing that's by definition quote hack work <laughs> and he thinks it's way easier to make a great movie out of a book than it is to make a great book out of a movie yeah. but it, this is a thing we're kind of talking about it uh, with an element of wonder and surprise because it is kind of maligned or it like who is the audience for these books oh i absolutely was maligning it when i thought 
of this idea in the first place. We came up with it like in September or something. And we were like, oh, that would be funny to read the novelization of the 1991 hit comedy film Home Alone uh-huh. for our book podcast. But uh, yeah, apparently it's a it's an understood and uh, misunderstood and underappreciated profession. And there's this there's this association called the uh, International Association of Media Tie-in Writers. Oh, that's so specific. And a i a m t w dot org. Their website is adorable because <laughs> it's got like a tiled image of like a a swirly pen. Like as the background. Oh, no. And as I think they, they give out awards at Comic-Con. And it seems like, and if you're a member of this guild, and I'm wrong about this, you should totally contact us. It seems like it's a society where like the 10 people who do this all get together and pat themselves on the back for doing such a good job at it. Because so few people appreciate what they're doing. You know what? Good for them. I actually, them. I actually think that's kind of. Gr- if a guy can win an award for writing an original twenty-four novel, like, come on. Are there? Please tell me that you didn't just pull that um, from nowhere. In the ninth annual Scribe Awards for books published in twenty fourteen, one of the nominees for best original novel was Twenty Four Deadline by James Swallow. <laughs> It lost out to Homeland Saul's Game by Andrew Kaplan. Yeah, this just is... this list of this list of adapted works from Star Trek to CSI, from Gunsmoke to Murder She Wrote, from Dune to James Bond, from Resident Evil to Hannah Montana. Like <laughs> it's all over the place. The winner of adapted novel uh last year was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Okay, cool. Just to just and I think there is more so now probably than you know even 30 years ago but the star wars and aliens actually fit into this example the tie-in does seem to have a little more resonance in sci-fi and fantasy right as well as kind of thriller stuff where you you can really go plot driven you no one if anyone is not like novelizing 12 years a slave like you're doing it wrong yeah so alan dean foster um talking about novelizations and why he takes them Mm -hmm. Um, first because I was a young writer and I needed to make a living and because as a fan I got to make my own director's cut I got to fix the science mistakes I got to enlarge on the characters if there was a scene I particularly liked I got to do more of it and I had an unlimited budget so it was fun by unlimited budget he means painting word pictures (laughs) is way cheaper than building sets (laughs) not that he was given an unlimited amount of money to do this was he the same guy who was tasked with uh, writing the like episode one Star Wars book and got to I talk to George did. Lucas for yeah, like he half an to hour. George Lucas and he he asked for George Lucas to to elaborate on the relationship between the Jedi and the Sith, and then George Lucas apparently talked for like half an hour. <laughs> oh, I wish he'd put that in the movie. He also did. Uh, he did Terminator Salvation too. Yes, yes. Oh, I love this so much. Uh, we got to talk about this book that we read, Andrew. But first, I think we need to take a quick break. Craig, this week's episode is brought to you in part by... Well, it's not brought to you, Craig. Oh, <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Craig, this week's episode <laughs> is sponsored in part by Squarespace. What do you know about Squarespace? They're those folks who help you make websites, right? 
I don't yeah. know how they do it, but they do it. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is that they're doing over there, they let you make professional-looking websites regardless of your skill level with no coding required. They give you intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and they are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world, including us. OverduePodcast.com is built on Squarespace. And so, I do trust them. It's true. Yeah, we're eating our own dog food, as they say. Ew. Yeah, it's an actual phrase. Don't I don't get it either. But. Do you still... <laughs> wait, I don't want to talk about dog food anymore. Do you still okay. get a free domain if you sign up for a year? Of course you do. Good. I just wanted to double check. Wait, are you asking me as part of the ad or just... D- yes. Okay. I didn't <laughs> we- <laughs> know if you actually knew. I think that you should and can and will start a free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to make that trial into a real live website, uh, when you sign up, if you use the code OVERDUE, you can get 10% off your first purchase. Uh, That includes all the great tools that we already mentioned and your own domain name. So if like dogfoodloversanonymous.net is a domain name that you want, you can totally get it with your Squarespace subscription. Or go email the guy who has that and like bully him about it. And get into a protracted legal battle with him. (laughs) And then build a website about that. Squarespace, build it beautiful. (laughs) Perfect. So Andrew... I don't want to get into a trap on this episode of just talking about the movie Home Alone. Okay, that's good because I've only seen it once and that was a year ago. And I made you watch it when I realized you'd never seen it. So there's, <laughs> there's that. I do think a couple things about like the, the movie's place in history are, is worth noting. Like We talked about how it's a descendant of Uncle Buck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do. Did you know that the Talkboy was invented because of Home Alone? I did know that actually. I had a Talkboy tape recorder as a kid. Apparently, the it was so popular. What did you use it for? I don't even know. Like I used it just to record my own voice saying things, and then speed it up or slow it down. You never like pranked people with it. I never pranked people. I only wanted to hear my voice going faster or slower <laughs> than it normally does. <laughs> You don't and even... it was hilarious. <laughs> My brother and sister and I got like endless fun out of that Talkboy tape recorder. What are you doing, Andrew? See, <laughs> hilarious. Uh, it's also worth noting that this movie was freaking huge. It, it was. I, I was not old enough to know this at the time. I don't even know if I actually saw it in theaters, but... It de- it debuted in November, and it was the top 10 movie until, like, February. It took Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 to dethrone this movie, Andrew. Wow. That's the secret of the ooze, my friend. It took the secret <laughs> of the ooze to knock this movie down a peg. And That's it was- the secret, is that <laughs> it was created to, to dethrone Home Alone. And it was uh, still in the top 10 until April of that year. And it remains one of, if not the highest grossing live action comedy. That's ridiculous. It's like the Titanic of kid 90s kid caper movies. And yeah. I said 1991 earlier. It's actually 1990. 
And apparently, I like to correct myself, so you should. That we can't be corrected by other people. <laughs> I think our our listeners are actually pretty generous with the corrections. They, I think, they let us get by with a lot more than they say. Well, it's always like when we do get corrections, it's always like they send it and they're like, "Just so you know," and then like a winky smiley face. So they're very like they're very friendly about they it. They are very. It's friendly not like a well, it. actually, <laughs> Han shot first. Well, he did, Andrew. So. <laughs> What do you let's get into this book. I think this book came out of that fervor. I think we need to honor that fervor by discussing this book with as much fervor as we can muster. All right. Tell me who is home and how they become alone. <laughs> well, the people who are home are the McAllister family. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are they're going to visit other family in France for Christmas. And they are in Chicago, right? We both they're read this Chicago, book. I don't know yeah. if we said this earlier. We both read this book. We both read the book. Because how could we not? <laughs> um, and they and they have this seven-year-old kid named Kevin. Yeah. And Kevin is like, Kevin is kind of annoying. We're going to, like, let's just say that right off the bat. Like, Kevin, at least at the beginning, is an annoying little kid. But also... The way his the rest of his family treats him is like borderline abuse. <laughs> Everyone is awful to him, especially Uncle Frank. Like Uncle Frank's a jerk. There's a really good zinger early on where Uncle Frank is being a jerk to Kevin, mm-hmm. and Uncle Frank helps him. Uh, he asks him for help with the VCR, and Kevin. Oh, that bur- is a good zinger. like it's a sick burn from Kevin. He goes, you've messed up you've you've messed up all the channels, Uncle Frank. How come you don't know how to use a, t- a VCR? And then Uncle Frank goes back, how come you don't know how to drive? I'm not old enough to drive. You're old enough to use a VCR. It's like, <laughs> what is this holiday where everyone's just like shouting at each other and calling each other jerks? So Kevin gets into it with his mom who sends him upstairs and he calls her a dummy. And he says, I hate my family. I wish you would all just disappear. And his mom is like a little, like still angry at him, but a little sad. The relationship between Kevin and his mom is, of course, the emotional, the beating heart of (laughs) Home Alone, the movie and the novelization. Now, yes, what you have, the, the other plot that is being laid in during this opening chaos is they're waiting for pizza, which is super and it's important. important that it is chaos because yeah. that's what makes the whole premise like, <laughs> make even a little believable. Any sense at all. Yeah. There's a lot about how they need to leave. They need to be at the airport by nine in the morning. Um, at one point, they get milk spilled on their passports, which is just like a very weird detail, I guess. Because <laughs> uh, it doesn't factor in again. Like they make... Some joke about the passports being stinky later, but it doesn't. It's not like a story thing. No. Uh, they get like two thousand pizzas, and then the pizza guy has to wait like an hour for someone to pay him. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Harry the burglar, who we know to be a burglar disguised as a cop, mm-hmm. is hanging out in their foyer scoping out the place yeah because he's he and his partner marv yep are are checking around because they know and that the book actually gets a little preachy in a couple places it does it does about let let me find one while i'm describing what they do but um they 
go around and like case different houses to see who's leaving for Christmas so they can rob the houses. Correct. And there's a sequence like in the middle of the book where they're talk where they're like lamenting modern life. <laughs> okay, he said with a satisfied grin. They're all gone and none of them will be back until after Christmas. And the great part is they told me from their own mouths. It's almost too easy, Marv said. Remember the old days, Harry asked, lighting the butt of a half-smoked cigar? Everybody stayed home for the holidays. Now it's off to Hawaii, Aspen, Paris, Marv said. Whatever happened to sitting around the fireplace with your family, roasting chestnuts and singing Christmas carols? People have become cynical, Harry said, shaking his head. Everyone's too jaded. It's just another sign of the moral decay of contemporary society. <laughs> yeah, Marv nodded. So which house you want to rob first? So simultaneously, the death of the middle class and the war on Christmas are responsible for the McAllisters getting robbed. Now, the war on Christmas is a dis- is a distinctly different thing where you where you try to make something out of something that's nothing. Well, that's a and, lot of and try to low. make and try to make a case that like the majority religion in America is somehow actually oppressed. Okay, that's fair. That's not what's happening here, but no. it's, I don't know. Religion Chris- doesn't really enter in. There is a scene in a church, but it's not like whether God is there or not, they don't say. No, Santaism is the dominant religion in this book. Right. Like strong belief in the theology of Santa Claus. As it is for most seven-year-olds. Yes. And it is very important that Kevin is a seven-year-old. They ta- He talks a lot about how everyone in his family is a teenager. Or acts like a teenager. Or acts like a teenager. Or is an adult. Like, I think the third line of the book is that Kevin has some of his adult teeth. Like, th- every opportunity to remind you of how much of a little boy this guy is. The front third of the book is, like, all really basic character descriptions. Yes. So, like, the first time we see Kevin, and this is, like, this is like the opening scene in this book is... Uh, Kevin McAllister, age seven, wandered through his house looking for something to do. He was a thin boy still waiting for a significant growth spurt. He had brown hair and almost all of his adult teeth. And like just just saying Kevin was a little boy with brown hair. Like that's the most boring way to tell somebody that he has brown hair. And then sometimes these descriptions are unintentionally hilarious. Like uh, later it's describing his sister, Megan. Uh huh. And it says Megan had curly brown hair and spent a lot of the time in the bathroom. She was a teenager and considerably taller than he. And I know when Todd Strasser tells me she spent a lot of the time in the bathroom, he means she's a teenager. She's in there like primping. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think like <laughs> she has serious intestinal problems. She and she's is lactose, always in the bathroom. She's lactose intolerant and ate a whole pizza. It spends a lot of time in the bathroom. Ate a whole cheese pizza. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how much of that is, um, A, it's a cast of like 2,000 people, and B, he's working from script treatments, I bet. Mm-hmm. So like some of this is just casting call stuff. Like we need I wonder call- if Joe Pesci had even been cast when Ooh. this book was being written. It was supposed to be, what's his face? The um, Danny DeVito? Was it Danny DeVito? It was either Danny DeVito or the meet the Fockers guy not Ben Stiller the guy who's actually an actor you're gonna have to give me more than that Robert De Niro Robert De Niro it was Robert De Niro I can't find evidence that either of those things is true so let's say it was Danny DeVito (laughs) okay great so after um his uncle Frank 
says, look what you did, you little jerk. And his older brother calls him a disease. And Kevin gets in a fight with his mom. He is then banished to the attic to go to sleep. It was Robert De Niro. Thank you. So he goes to sleep, Andrew. And what what happens like just before he goes to bed? There's a storm. There's a storm. Well, That's just while they're all in bed, it's like three in the morning. Yeah, he's made the the Christmas wish that his family would just disappear. Mm-hmm. And so Santa God sends a storm <laughs> down to the neighborhood that knocks out the phone. Uh huh. Because it's like like so many movies and sitcoms in the nineties, like the stories rely heavily on plot points that would just not be possible if people had cell phones or the internet. Yeah, right. So it knocks out the phone line and the electricity. And so because the electricity went out, the McAllister's alarm clock does not go out, go off in the morning when they're supposed to wake up because they've got that morning flight to Paris. Correct. So they wake up. They're woken up by the airport limo that's come to pick them up. Is that even a thing? Airport limos? I think use the word limo. I they think they just mean shuttles. Can you get a car from the airport to come and get you at your house? Yeah. Have you never done that? No. I mean, you might, it might not be... Because I'm not one of the 1%, Craig. <laughs> it might not be like uh, a car run by the airport. It's like a car service. You could call mm-hmm. a car service to take you to the airport. I've called taxis to go to the airport. They'll show okay, up, if I, you're just talking about taxis, that's one thing. But this descri- this book describes it as an airport limo. Sure. So I assume it's an actual limousine operated by... With like a wet O'Hare. bar and a fish tank. Yeah, a yeah. wet bandit bar. <laughs> All right, so they're scrambling to get out of the house, and Mrs. McAllister tells one of the kids, I don't remember who, to do a head count to make sure that they have everybody. Yep. And there's this little weirdo neighbor kid who wanders oh. over for just enough time to be counted as one of the kids Yep. and then wanders back home. So they think they have everybody and they all like the the family is big enough that they don't all see each other all at once. Uh-huh. Like whether they're in the airport limo or actually on the plane. And so they managed to leave the country without realizing that Kevin was left behind. Yes. So tell me what's happening with Kevin now. Excuse me. Bless you. I needed to sneeze. Um so Kevin wakes up and he's wondering where everyone is. And he starts to realize that maybe they're gone, uh, that they've gone to France without him. Um, no, he thinks they're just gone. He well, thinks that his wish made them disappear. Well, first he, he thinks that they've, that they've left without him. And then they're like, oh, no, but the cars were still here. So they couldn't mm-hmm. have driven to the airport. He was not up. He did not get the airport limo memo, I don't think. No. Apparently his parents did not, like, clue him in on every stage of the, of the trip. But then, like, he sees this evidence of his mother being raptured, which is, like, the coffee maker was still glowing, like, the light was on. <laughs> The the beds were all unmade. There's a big pile of pizza boxes because mom always throws the garbage out. And he just saw her shoes out on the sidewalk that uh, like yeah. she was left behind. <laughs> There's like clothes. They all like died Jedi deaths and their clothes yeah. are just all over the place. <laughs> and he John like, Williams scored this movie, though. There's like, a connection of Jedi. Yeah, there's a connection. Uh, and then he realizes that m- this must mean that his family disappeared. Because he's seven. And he has a moment of like, uh-oh, I did a bad thing. 
and then he realizes that his sister Megan called him an idiot. His sister Lenny said he was les incompetent. I don't incompetent. Said he was incompetent in French. And Tracy called him a disease. Uncle Frank pulled down his pants, and literally he says, "And now he now he was supposed to feel bad for those dorks? No way." A small smile appeared on his face. This could be great. There are a couple of like the dorks thing. I think is the an jerks interesting thing. turn of phrase. Yeah. Whenever he goes to make anything in the microwave, he he nukes it. He nukes it, which is the thing that my mom says. I used to. I would say it depending on the food. You nuke it. I don't. Yeah, use, like nuking usually for me referred to reheating. Something. Yes, yes. I'm nuking some ref, some refried beans or some. It's just an potatoes. interesting turn of phrase, like implying that you're dropping an atomic bomb on on your old mashed potatoes i am am bombing this popcorn right now (laughs) it's a cuban missile crisis in my stomach and i gotta fix it (laughs) so i i what happens next he's like hanging out in his house he's like cool with the fact that his family's gone he just has he's cool for a bit with the fact that his family's gone but then it gets to be nighttime and yes. He's, and he's getting to be like he's getting to be hungry. He's starting to realize how serious his predicament is. The well, the predicament he believes himself to be in. That's true. <laughs> and so he starts thinking about, all right, I've gotta I'd like I gotta go get a toothbrush. I've gotta go get food from the grocery store. Yep. I've gotta do like responsible adult things. And also, wouldn't it be great if there's somebody around who did these things for me and I miss my family so like much? Like parents. Yeah, that's his yeah. arc. I, I was I appreciated more fully in the book the way that this stuff is like kind of set up like a little clockwork machine. Like mm-hmm. he's he's scared of the neighbor old man Marley, right? Who's like the neighbor guy who maybe kills people and buries yeah, them in his, his basement. Brother, his brother Buzz tells him that he has a bunch of corpses oh, in God. his basement. Uh, Buzz sucks. Buzz does suck. And the reason, like, so Buzz he goes out. Frank. Oh, he goes out to go get that toothbrush, right? And I, I hadn't appreciate. I didn't remember if this is in the movie or not. But he sees old man Marley, and old man Marley's hand is cut. And he says, oh, I cut it on a shovel. Don't be afraid. And I and, don't remember if the cut's in the movie, but the scene is definitely in the movie. And Kevin goes, oh, my God, he cut his hand on his shovel. That means it's sharp enough to cut people. And so <laughs> he's scared and steals a toothbrush, which then becomes a huge like turning point for him because no no matter what happens in the rest of the book, he will not trust the police. Cause he yeah, stole because he thinks toothbrush. the police are after him. Because they are after him briefly. Like, they... he like does this thing where he runs across a frozen pond and some cops like fall over each other there are like some of the, the slapsticks yeah yeah some of those slapstick pratfalls in this book obviously would work better like there's just a whole chapter with the thieves that that just like it speeds by in the book and it leaves not much of an impression that like that's most of the point of the movie yes is the whole like heist defense like relationship yeah at the end mm-hmm. uh so they're in the, the McAllister family is still in france though right they've landed and they're on the plane when mrs McAllister realizes what they've done yes and so when they land in france she makes it her mission to get back to chicago any way she can mm-hmm. and every once in a while we check in with her and there's some other thing that's waylaying her whether it's the fact that there are no flights available or that it's snowing and the airport, like the destination airport, is closed. It's just a lot of stuff. And the that's other happening to delay yeah, the her other coming home track is 
uh, his dad, Peter, is like calling around the neighborhood and no one's home. Because they all left for Christmas because of the modern era that we live in. Yep. And like they call the cops to go check on Kevin and they knock on the door, but Kevin's afraid of old man Marley, so he doesn't answer the door. And the cops are like, oh, I guess all the lights are on or just on timers. This house is fine. See you later. (laughs) It's really shoddy police work going on. It's pretty bad. The police are not much of a help in this movie. And then the wet bandits are slowly like... And by movie, I mean book, I guess. Yeah, whatever. And by wet bandits, you mean nothing because the wet bandits... They are never called the wet bandits. That was the biggest book to movie change. So in the movie, they have a calling card. (laughs) Every house that they rob, they turn on all the faucets in the house. Uh So the sinks like all run over. Uh Uh-huh. And they make the houses all wet, and they 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 say they're the wet bandits. And in this book, they don't turn on any faucets. They don't want to have like a brand at all. <laughs> they don't leave any calling cards. They're not no, the wet bandits. No they're hashtags. They're just Harry and Marv. Yeah, no, yeah. No opportunities to continue the conversation. It's terrible. And they're all like they all get excited about like TVs and VCRs and stuff. Like it's as somebody who sells old consumer electronics like on ebay periodically (laughs) like in the modern age you could get like eight hundred dollars for a whole house full of stuff now yeah it's not a a buyer's market certainly so then i guess the next we can kind of skip to the big climactic scene of the book because the only other kind of stuff that happens is the Kevin's emotional journey where like as he's being terrorized by these burglars in their initial like forays into his house, he starts to realize that he wants his family back. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about before we talk about the big like set piece. Yeah. Let's talk about his, his emotional moment, because I think that's, there are so many nineties movies that came after this that used the kid or pet versus like semi incompetent bandit, like, (laughs) like Beethoven, yeah, is is made in this mold like there's Baby's like Day Out, crappy dog. Yeah, Baby's Day Out. Like it's all incompetent thieves trying to thief something and like not knowing when to quit. Yeah, of course. But Home Alone has a very genuine little nugget of emotion in the middle of it that I think is um, is like definitely John Hughesian. Sure. So tell me about that. Oh, okay. Do you mean the scene with Marley in the church? Or- yeah. Well, okay. So Kevin, he uh he's been doing adult stuff. Like he he wants he thinks he wants his family back, and so he's gonna make that his Christmas Eve wish. He has to save up all his wish power, so he's not gonna wish for like snow on Christmas, but he's gonna do a bunch of adult stuff so that God Santa thinks he's good mm-hmm. and gives him his family back. Just brings his family like in a big sack and leaves them in the living <laughs> There's room. There's a line where he says that Santa brings gifts, not bodies. <laughs> it's like absurd. It sounds so, like a line from like uh, like if the wire ever did a Christmas episode. <laughs> snow strang snow. <laughs> Uh, Proposition so, snow. Proposition <laughs> snow. Uh, so Kevin goes and checks in with a, with a like a mall Santa, talks to him briefly, and then he pops into the church. Uh, and he sees he's like watching a choir concert, 
and he sees Old Man Marley. And they have an exchange about how Old Man Marley is sort of creepily, but sort of emotionally woundedly watching his granddaughter sing in this choir because he's had a fight with his son and they don't talk anymore. So he's not allowed to hang out with his granddaughter and it makes him sad. So this is the only time that he can see her. And Kevin's like, wow, that's dumb. You should probably like call your son and work it out. That's From probably the mouths of babes. Yeah. And that is the moment that also crystallizes for Kevin the importance of family. And, to, and shows him that old man Marley is not a murdering monster, but in fact a sad grandpa. Yeah. I guess it's a those... crucial difference. Like it's a it's a very thin line <laughs> between shovel murderer and sad grandpa, but, but it's there, and you I need don't to know where to, it is. I don't mean to imply that they are mutually exclusive either. <laughs> I suppose it's possible that sad grandpas could be shovel murderers, but not in this. Maybe story. that's the thing that he and his son fought about: is his son wanted him to stop killing people. I'm not and letting you hang out with Susie until you stop murdering people with your <laughs> shovel, Dad. It's just who I am. Dad, can we just spend me? a Christmas watching the Bears game instead of you murdering someone with your shovel? Dad. <laughs> so embarrassing. And this, okay, now we're going to enter into another difference from the book, from the movie that I did not care for, Todd Strasser. Cut and again, to... it might not be Todd Strasher's fault. It might be an early draft of the screenplay's fault. Okay. And that's cut. I think okay. that the the wet bandits thing probably came later. Yes, because it's not like crucial to anything. It's just like a little comedy beat. Earlier, when he scares off the wet bandits, I'm still calling them the wet bandits. When he scares them off <laughs> by like staging his mom's mannequins to like dance around to music because she's a right. fashion designer, so she has mannequins. Mm-hmm. In the book, he plays Joy to the World on the piano, and the bandits are like, "Oh, there's people there." In the movie, it's the like rocking around the Christmas tree. There's like Michael Jordan. Yeah, he has like cutouts. a standee of Michael Jordan there. <laughs> and I wonder if that's a lot of either that was not in the script specifically, and a lot of that was like designers adding to the movie. Yeah, or you could not secure the rights to mention that in the book or something. I don't know. Like, do you need rights to mention Michael Jordan in a book? Like, no, he definitely the song, mentions I a think. lot of other sports people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh, that's right. When he's like shooting Don Mattingly in the head with a BB gun. Well, a little an action figure of Don Mattingly. I was but... seeing it from Kevin's point of view, but sure, nonetheless. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a really creepy little run, actually. <laughs> That I sent along to, to some people to read. Um, when he's he's taken Buzz's BB gun and he's like setting up Buzz's sports like toys. Yeah, and he and it's like this: you're all getting executed because you are owned by Buzz, and I hate Buzz. <laughs> Kevin aimed the BB gun at Don Mattingly. Pow! Don Mattingly's head flew off, and his body fell into the chute. Pow! Pow! He got Magic Johnson in the knee and shoulder. Pow! Joe Montana sustained a severe stomach wound. This is the life, Kevin said with a smile. <laughs> Just that it describes them as like not action figures or, or like figurines, but as like the people. It's like he's shooting Don <sighs> Mattingly so in the terrible. face. Terrible. It's off. He's a monster, mm-hmm. I think. He's a- he starts out as a monster, but then he slowly becomes less of a monster. Yeah. Um. So the, the thing for me is there is no setup to the house defense 
the what the movie has that the book does not have is the like cool montage of the traps being set. And maybe you don't need that in the book, but it, I felt like it was missing. Mm-hmm. Of like you watching him, and and what's nice about that is it does set up the callbacks that come up, like the variety of things that work their way into all of the traps have been teased earlier on, which uh, worked pretty well in the book. But we can, we can kind of talk. It about worked that okay. Now. Like he goes down into the basement and it's just like casually noted that all the stuff he needs for all the traps is like down there in the basement. There's uh, yes. old paint cans. And there's roof tar and there's mannequins and just what, you know, if, if anybody needed to like bug a house <laughs> with MacGyvered <laughs> inventions, like everything you need is down there. Earlier, they talk about Kevin getting in trouble for playing with the blowtorch, which is great because <laughs> the blowtorch factors heavily. So, Andrew, I found an article from The Week that interviewed Dr. Ryan St. Clair, and I think this article goes around every every holiday season as people rewatch this movie. Yeah, there there are a handful of things that go around. It's like people discovering anew that Baby It's Cold Outside is the creepiest song that's ever been written. Uh-huh. Um, people realizing that the Talkboy tape recorder only exists because of Home Alone and then mm-hmm. like this. It's mostly Home Alone stuff. <laughs> it's mostly Home Alone stuff. <laughs> um, so I have a couple examples of what happens to the Wet Bandits in the defense and mm-hmm. and Dr. Ryan St. Clair would like you to know kind of how bad it would be in real life. <laughs> so what happens, do you remember what happens to Marv in the basement? What falls on Marv in the basement? An iron. An iron. Like a clothes iron falls down the laundry chute and onto his face. Like square in the face. Mm-hmm. Ryan St. Clair says that this would cause blowout fractures around your eyes. <laughs> Creating well, that's not funny. <laughs> double vision and likely permanent disfigurement. Okay. Uh, then, while that is happening, Harry's trying to get in through the front door. We kind of talked about this, Andrew. Mm-hmm. What does Kevin do to the front door? Um, is this where he like shoots someone in like in the forehead at point blank range with a BB gun? Well, that well that happens through the doggy door. Okay, that does happen. But this is the front door. This isn't where he ices the porch, right? The 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 porch is iced, and the handle is glowing red. Right, because he torches the other end of it, and because metal conducts heat, the other side of the door handle is really hot. Yes, and Harry burns his hand on it. Uh, Dr. St. Clair says that for the doorknob to look like that, it would have to be over 700 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and even, uh, even 155 degrees... Uh, could result in third degree burns. So we are looking at like a Johnny Tremaine situation for Harry's hand. So Harry would touch it and he would just go up like a blowtorch. <laughs> His like... hand would just d- disappear. <laughs> and later, when the blowtorch gets lit on Harry's head, he doesn't run away right away. He like mm-hmm. stands in it, experiences the pain. The doctor says that this would rot his skull bones, basically. (laughs) In the book, all it does is burn his hair off. Sure. That's a really hot blowtorch, though. And then there's some other, like, I don't, do you have more doctor stuff? Um, Just that when the cans hit you, they hit you with, the paint cans that are full of paint, they hit you with two kilonewtons of force Mm -hmm. that would likely knock you unconscious for hours. Now, I I would like to think that a kilonewton 
is a measurement of how much force it would take to kill Isaac Newton. <laughs> That's possible. Or how much force it would hit you if someone threw Newton at you. Oh, that's that's also good. Yeah. Scientists cannot agree on which interpretation <laughs> of the of the value is the so, right one. So now you've only seen this movie once, Andrew. What was it like reading this section? What were your I thoughts knew, on who like Kevin I, is and what he's up to? I already knew and I and like in the book it's it's set up pretty clearly as as Kevin is like I have to defend my home. I'm I don't have a family anymore and I've got to do whatever it takes. And I knew from watching the movie like I, one of the reasons I wanted to do this novelization is because I wanted to read the descriptions of the crazy <laughs> slapstick stuff. Uh huh. Like, so one of them, it might be Harry. I don't remember which one of the thieves it is because they're mostly interchangeable. Is um one of them like steps on nails, oh, steps God. on broken glass, ah. and even in the book it refers to his feet as being shredded. Ah. And really, Ugh. he should be leaving like a trail of gore everywhere he walks <laughs> and it doesn't show up in the movie and it doesn't show up in the book but you can imagine like how gruesome his injuries are if you stop to think about it for a second yeah because you know? what the book doesn't have the sense of which the movie only has some sense of is cartoon right yeah there is the an air of the bugs bunny to the movie that is right, that doesn't useful. exist in the book. Up until now, the book is very like trying to be realistic and like and, and setting up all the improbable stuff that happens. Like the phone lines are down, he steals that toothbrush inadvertently, and like everything has an explanation. Yeah, it's not as wily e. coyote as the movie is. And so mm-hmm. these people should just be dead. And I, I caught myself thinking at one point. Uh, until Kevin said, like, haven't they had enough? Can't they just leave? Like, until I read that, I was wondering what this monster's endgame was. Like, what is he... What is the plan here? But in the in the movie, I also remember Kevin as, like, always... He always so... So obviously had the upper hand. Yes. That it seemed a little sadistic to, like, keep doing this stuff to these thieves. <laughs> And in the book, I felt like I got more of a sense of Kevin's vulnerability. Yes. Well, he which is, is one a of little the things boy. about novelizations is that when you expand something from 20,000 words to 60,000 words, you like you do that mostly through exposition and like introspection and like more just more description of what is happening in characters heads, I think. Yeah, there is this like he is a slim little boy of seven years with almost all his adult teeth. Like he is not a wise. He's not described as wise. Cracking Macaulay Culkin walks up and yeah, he's not like Dennis the Menace. No, and so there is yeah, there is a I think a slightly more palpable sense of danger to Kevin, uh, even though. <laughs> Even though he is like lighting people on fire <laughs> successfully, right? Uh, and then it, this gets to like my biggest logic hole in the in the whole story is then you know he has to escape from the house. He ends up in Old Man uh, Marley's house, and they almost get him, but Old Man Marley saves him, and then they give the guys over to the cops. How does he save them? He hits them in the head with his shovel. Yep, but he does not murder them. His murder and shovel. <laughs> Listen, this book does it humanizes old man Marley, but it does not tell us that he does not kill people that with is, shovels. That's correct. It never directly contradicts that story. <laughs> but then they just like 
give those guys over to the cops. And I'm sorry, the cops don't ask any more questions. Kevin just goes home after I that. I feel like they should be at, like at least they should be taken to the hospital first. <laughs> <laughs> but they should wonder like, did this kid light these guys on fire? Why is there a nail in that guy's foot? Like, what is going on here? Where is this kid's parents? Mm-hmm. No, 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 never mind that the parents already called the police force from Paris to ask if this kid was okay. Yeah, no, in real life, the McAllisters would come home to find people from CPS sitting in their <laughs> living room. Ready to turn their child over to the wet bandits because he's safer with them <laughs> than he is with the McAllisters. Uh, and then the and then the movie, not the movie. Oh man, that's bad. Then the book winds down, and uh, people start coming home, and that that gets back to the heart of the book that you were talking about earlier, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And he just he comes down on Christmas Day, and he's expecting his family to be there because that's what he used all his Christmas Santa wish power on. Uh huh. But they're not there, and he's just really sad about it. But then his mom. Thanks to a van that was driven from Detroit to Chicago, I think. Yeah, by it's a John polka Candy band in the movie. Yeah. yeah, it's a polka band. Um, she gets home and he comes down and she's home and they hug, and then the rest of the family gets home because they took a more sensible flight. Yes, that got them back only like ten minutes later than than mom got there. But he's just very happy to see all of them. And most of them, even Buzz, are sort of happy to see him and excited that he brought he bought fabric softener and stuff like that. Because their main complaint about him was he was just a little kid and he couldn't do anything for himself. And obviously, he did a lot for himself. Now, in the book, the fact that the house was almost burglarized, like he doesn't mention that to his parents, right? Not at all. They just see that he managed not to die for the two days he was home alone. And the house is cleaner than when they left. Right. There's not like a bunch of blood in the carpet that they need to No, the only little thing that they find is Harry's gold tooth that was knocked out. And Kevin's dad is like, huh, I guess this belongs to my wife. Yeah, so the police obviously would not do any follow-ups and, like, come back and question the McAllisters about anything. Or, like... That would be too much for this police department. Yeah, or maybe ask them why their kid is a, like, criminal mastermind capable of saw-type torture chambers. Like, maybe he should be working for the CIA as, like, a black hat. I believe that Macaulay Culkin did a video... Oh, like no. he, where he, like this was this year he reprised his role, but as an adult, and he is like a saw type serial killer now. <laughs> He's just jigsaw. <laughs> so, was this everything you hoped it would be, Andrew? Do you, was Pretty was there much. other turns of phrase that got you goofy a little bit that was struck there... you funny? Let me. Do you have any? Because I'm. I probably need a second to look mine up. Um. I just. I just liked every mention of like brand names. So they mentioned Pepsi a few times. Um. One. Marv is carrying a brand new Sony Trinitron TV set. Harry carries a Panasonic LaserDisc player. Um, They're all. They go on about. How stealing like these like a couple thousand dollars worth of consumer electronics from this house is gonna quote unquote set them up for life. <laughs> and I think Harry keeps calling it the silver tuna. He does call it the silver tuna. 
Man, I can taste it, Harry said as he got out. I'm telling you, Marv, this is the score that's going to set us up for life. <sighs> what? I guess, yeah. I, to Another thing that you've alluded to, Andrew, is, is there's like weird commercialized idioms that creep in. And so there's one, uh, this is during Kevin's early days as a Home Alone child. And he had just done several very adult things and was quite pleased with himself. Then this morning, for the first time in his life, he'd taken a shower all by himself and washed every part of his body with actual soap, including all the major crevices, like those between his toes and his belly button, which he had never washed before. The major crevices. He was surprised to find that he sort of enjoyed it. He had also washed his hair with adult formula shampoo and used a cream rinse for that just wash shine. <laughs> like, I think about the major crevices didn't stick with me until you read it, but like as opposed to the minor crevices, I guess. Don't know. What? I don't know what that means. In summary, this book says holy cow on the cover which because I was reading it at the same time I was reading Fifty Shades Freed, gave it a whole new dimension for me. Yeah. Holy cow. Holy cow. Uh, we also needed the break after Fifty Shades, so this was actually really What great. if an iron fell into your butt? <laughs> <laughs> Fifty Shades alone. Fifty Shades alone. <laughs> If you want to pitch us ideas for Fifty Shades Alone, uh, you can email them to overduepod at gmail.com. I want to thank Gretchen and Mariah for writing in about far more reasonable things. Um, You can also post your favorite jigsaw traps to our Facebook or Twitter pages at Facebook and Twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank Melissa, Susan, Amy, Laura, Albie, Sophie, Matthew... Uh, Odin the Dog, Dana, Moriconti, Jay to the Ill, Stouthearted, Paper Chimes, Duchess Cadbury, My Book Jacket, Melissa Amber, Reading the End, Catherine, Tessa, Robert Zim, Boyvin, and Tysaphine for reaching out on social media. I also want to give another shout out to Julie, who's trying to get our Goodreads group off the ground. Head to search for Overdue Pod on Goodreads and join our Goodreads group and talk about the books that we uh, have read. Andrew, where should people find out more about our show? They can find out more at OverduePodcast.com, which is where we keep iTunes, RSS, and Stitcher links. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show and get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. Um, up there, you can also find um, Amazon links to the books that we have read, the ones that we are going to read. You can click those, buy the books, and we get a little cut of that. You can find a link to our Patreon page. That's You can also find that at Patreon.com slash overdue pod that's a great way to sponsor the show in a more like ongoing way um this year we we launched a patreon back in february i think and we've been able to buy equipment we've been able to buy books we were able to give ourselves like a little christmas bonus which is the first time i think we've ever paid ourselves for making the show which is kind of cool um so yeah everybody who contributes to that thank you so much for supporting us and um, there's also a link to our podcast network, HeadGum. Um, if you go to headgum.com, you can find all of their other shows. Uh, give yourself the gift of more podcasts to listen to. 
Yeah. I, th- I think you'll like it. That's that's my gift to you, the listener, this holiday season. Andrew, did you thank the people who gave us iTunes reviews this week? I have not thanked them. CVS Devotee, Player476, Zach Gray, Sally May, Sarah Morton, and Sim Sherlock. Uh, we put out the bat signal for it. Um, that's branded, but I said it anyway. And uh, it really... <laughs> the book signal. As Andrew said, it helps people find the show. So thanks for doing that on iTunes. Yeah, we wanted to get up above 100 reviews and 200 ratings, and we smashed it. So like, if you want to do it between now and the end of the year, like, keep it coming. But The next round number is 200 five-star ratings. Keep it up, folks. Yeah, thanks, guys. Andrew, what are we talking about next week? It's a special episode, I think, right? Is it? It's oh, yeah, been a we're... series of special episodes lately. <laughs> we've uh we've got a fan favorite margaret h willison is gonna come back and tell us about uh cuckoo's calling which is the first book in the cormorant strike series by uh jk rowling i forget what the pen name robert galbraith right yeah that's correct uh she's gonna come around garth brooks and teach us all about pen names and stuff and i think like that is our last episode of 2015 right yeah, I think so. Well, thank you guys so much for a great year. Uh, we want 2016 to be even better. And we've got a lot of books already picked out, authors already picked out. Like we're trying to do more to read more diverse authors. We're just trying we're trying to keep making the same show except like better. Yeah. More more hilarious. Which <laughs> this week obviously we were able to do that. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. It's been a really good year. I don't yeah, want to. This is the last episode the point, we're recording in 2015. That's true. There, I think there is like a bonus episode and Margaret's episode still to come. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, mm-hmm. Thanks again to Squarespace for sponsoring us this week. And everybody, until we see you next time, try to be happy and have a great holiday. That was a HeadGum Podcast.